Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, and thank you for joining me. I'm excited to welcome Ken Liu to the podcast. Ken is the winner of Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards for his short stories, but we're not going to be talking about short stories. Today, we're going to be talking about a book Ken translated, The Three-Body Problem, and a book he wrote, The Grace of Kings. I'm so glad you can join me today, Ken. Thank you, Rob. Glad to be here. Well, let's start with uh, The Three-Body Problem, which is by best-selling Chinese author Xin Lu and has been nominated for a nebula. And I'm sure your translation had a lot to do with uh, its recognition here in the English-speaking world. Um, as I understand it, there are not a lot of Chinese science fiction novels that get translated into English. Is that right? Uh, I believe that's right. Well, I know that's right. Um, I mean, there... <laughs> The, the 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 question is somewhat complicated by the fact that terms like Chinese and science fiction uh, are all somewhat in contention. So I, I will say that The Three-Body Problem is the first um, hard sci-fi novel by an author from the People's Republic of China to be translating to English. Uh, and it is quite a milestone. Wow. And it's actually uh, becomes, it's a, it's a series of three. So it's three, it's a, it's a trilogy that has been translated. That's right. Um, the second volume is being done by Joel Martinson, uh, and I'm doing the third volume. Uh, the second volume is actually coming out this July. Uh, so if you like The Three-Body Problem, be sure to pick up The Dark Forest. Well, tell me uh, how the project came about and how you got involved with it. Um, so The Three-Body Problem is sort of a publishing phenomenon in China. Um, hard sci-fi novels, uh, science fiction novels, and basically uh, even soft sci-fi novels, um, have not done, uh, have not historically done well in China. I mean, uh, this is all relative. They they sell in numbers. That would be the envy of any author here in the English speaking world. But in China, um, you know, the numbers are are you have to sort of multiply everything by a factor of five to ten to 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 get the same sort of equivalent. Um, so science fiction, even though it was selling big numbers for us, uh, for the Chinese audience and the Chinese publishing industry, it was considered sort of a niche genre. The three-body problem, however, kind of um, broke through that. Um, after uh, Liu Cixin sort of wrote the three books and got them published, um, they each volume sold better than the than the previous one, and ultimately became a bestseller. Um, uh, over four hundred thousand. Uh, copies of the set have been sold, and those are just the official numbers. Um, uh, the the actual number of readers is probably bigger um, as books get passed from people to people, and uh, I don't know if that number accounts for ebook copies and so on. So uh, it, it, it's truly a bestseller um, by by any standard, um, and it sort of revitalized the Chinese science fiction industry. Um, I, I think uh, there have been more. Uh, science fiction books, both translated and by Chinese authors, being published in China after the success of the Three Body Problem. So uh, it's all around a very 
cool celebrate um, something to be celebrated. Um, I got involved because I, I read the books and I thought they were really cool. Um, but you know, I, I I've done some translations before, but mostly of short fiction. Um, and I didn't think I would have an opportunity to do a novel because, uh, as you note, it's it's very rare for a novel from any country to be translated into English. Uh, I think our published market has only one to two percent um, published works. Uh, sorry, translated works. So, um, you know, that was a very remote kind of opportunity. Um, but then uh, a company, a publishing company in China called um, China, China Educational Publishing important export company, CEPIEC. I'm not sure I got the total name right, but the, the acronym is CEPIEC. Um, they bought up the form rights to the trilogy, uh, and then they wanted to bring it to the English market. Um, they ended up partnering with Tor Books, um, and they approached me um, to be the translator for the first volume. Uh, originally, uh, uh, three translators were picked for three volume because they had a very aggressive translation publication schedule and the only way to get it done in time was to have three people working on it in parallel. Ultimately, um, uh, the translator they picked originally for book three had to drop out uh, due to other commitments. So I ended up doing book three as well. Um, but So that's basically how I got involved. Uh, and then I got to work with Tor Books a lot, um, editing the translation to um, uh, make it uh, work better for American readers, um, and rest is history. Well, uh, tell me, tell me about uh, two things come to mind. One is I wonder why. What's the conventional understanding about why it has proved so popular in China? Is it is it just uh, the time is ripe? Is it the way it's written in in such a way that engaged people? It, this is a complicated question with no simple answers. Um, if you ask different readers, editors, publishers, authors, they all have their own explanation. Um, I mean, personally, I, I think the book is uh, extraordinary um, in terms of the scope of its imagination. I mean, you know, I'm talking about the, the, the three books as a whole. Um, it, it spans the time from the Cultural Revolution and also actually as you'll find out uh, from <laughs> uh, ancient history of, of the human race, um, all the way to sort of the end of the universe, literally. Um, the, the, the scope of the story, the, the, the way that is being sort of packed, all kinds of imaginative, just uh, breathtaking kind of scientific speculation and engineering projects into the three books is is just amazing it, it is it's core sci-fi in the in the classical sense it's um, very focused on the romance of the stars and this idea that we need to get off this rock and go into space um, and 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 the way it contemplates ultimate questions about the meaning of the existence and life uh, I, I think that has a lot of appeal to readers um, but uh, to be honest, it, it, it's, it's not totally clear to anyone why this particular book is the one that broke out of the um, niche status of, of sci-fi in China in general. Um, even the author himself is somewhat confused by it because he's written other novels before and he's a very popular short fiction author, uh, but none of his works have been anywhere nearly as popular as, as The Three-Body Problem and even after the success of, of the series. His other works have not, um, uh, his previous works have not achieved the same kind of popularity. 
Um, so there's probably a measure of luck involved. Uh, the, the, the quality of the book certainly is, is one of them. Um, but I, I think ultimately uh, some of the explanation is just never going to be totally clear to people. Uh, sometimes things come together in a way at the right moment with the right book, with the right author, and it just breaks out and no one can really predict it. And do you have any sense how it's been doing here in, in translation? Um, I don't know the exact numbers because I don't have access to them, but Tor Books have um, uh, told me that it's doing really well. Uh, I, I believe it sold 20,000 copies relatively quickly after publication. I don't know what the numbers are now. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of, of a book, a translated book by an author with no name recognition in the U.S., um, it's done extraordinarily well. Well, tell, let's talk about the challenges of translation. Uh, you know, are they mainly about the semantics and word choice, or are they conceptual? Are there are there cultural concepts that you that you have to um, that challenge you in terms of translating them? I wonder. I wonder where if there were any stumbling blocks and and what they say about the difference between audiences and cultures. That's a very difficult question to answer succinctly. Um, I will say this: there were multiple kinds of challenges I anticipated. And the real challenges that came about during translation were totally different. Um, I, you know, thought initially that uh, trying to translate the physics jargon would be difficult. Uh, and so I lined up all sorts of scientific consultants to help me. I got my friends who were physicists, my my uncle, who's a, who's a bona fide um, high-energy physics um, uh researcher and, and all sorts of people um, to, to help me out. Uh, it turns out that part <laughs> was actually the least difficult part because, um, as you might imagine, the language of science uh, is fairly um, uh, uniform, actually, uh, because in, in, in most other languages like Chinese, they really just uh, translate directly from English uh, to, to form the jargon. So something like traveling wave maser um, in, in Chinese is just the literal translation of each individual word. So translating it back, that sort of thing is very easy to do. Um, the, the, the only thing I needed to, to do is sometimes um, I needed to rewrite the scientific explanations a little bit for uh, ease of understanding. Uh, and sometimes the math and the science involving the book um, when it was written in 2006 and between when I did the translation had changed. You know, there are new discoveries and new papers published. So I found those papers uh, and I said, okay, you know, uh, I talked to the author and I said, you know, uh, the, the conclusion here might need to be modified a little bit because we've learned more information. So we need to say something different here. Uh, and uh, the author and I worked together to come up with a new way of um, explaining these things or updating the, the, the research, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, that was time consuming, but it was sort of fun and enjoyable, not particularly challenging because I enjoy reading scientific papers uh, and doing all these astrophysics and math um, updates are just perfectly fun. Um, the, the harder challenges come from the cultural issues. Um, there are a lot of cultural assumptions um, that different people have that are not obvious uh, until you try to translate something uh, and then you realize that it doesn't work because the, the target audience don't share the same kind of assumptions. I mean, for example, one particular section of the three-body problem involves using 
Chinese historical figures in a video game um, to represent uh, a debate about uh, uh, the, the, the advent of a rational, knowable uh, view of the universe. Um, and uh, I, I, the, the, the Chinese figures are well known to a Chinese audience. They're important philosophers and important historical figures. Um, but they are not really known to the American audience. So if I just translate the names directly, a lot of the, 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 the resonances and the meanings are sort of lost. Um, and yet there wasn't really a good way to do it. I mean, I can't just go in and start substituting in uh, quote-unquote equivalent Western figures uh, for these debates because the video game uh, is a deliberate melding of Western and Eastern traditions. And, and to sort of take the Chinese stuff out of there would not really work. It would not be an accurate representation of the original. And at the same time, I can't just go in there and start adding uh, an encyclopedia-like article about the background of these characters. That, that's just not the sort of thing I think readers would tolerate. So I ended up having to compromise a little bit. I added small footnotes to give readers sort of a bare hint of, of who these people were and why they were important. Uh, and since we live in the age of Wikipedia, a reader who's interested uh, would at least be able to look up the names and find out more if they wish to. Um, and then I, I try to elaborate on the explanations uh, a little bit here and there uh, to, to make the, the point clear to a Western reader uh, who has no historical background. So that sort of thing was very challenging because um, the cultural assumptions uh, and cultural background knowledge being different between uh, different reader communities may, makes a work difficult um, to translate directly from one language to another. Um, and it's also set in a, I mean, you know, the Chinese history that it refers to, I mean, the three-body problem, as you say, opens uh, in the Cultural Revolution, which clearly impacts the psychology of the initial characters who are introduced. I mean, there's a main character who, who sees, you know, her, her father horribly abused, and then, um, you know, that, that, that sort of sets up a lot of her motivations. Um, but I guess that that's sort of almost self-explanatory. I mean, people can understand or imagine, and yet it feels um, very, it feels very particular to that, to that, um, to the Chinese recent history. Um, I think that's both true and not true, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain this a little bit. Um, I mean, certainly it's possible to read the Three Body Problem as a particularly Chinese work in the sense of um, the Cultural Revolution being a very important. Uh, part of the motivation of the characters. Uh, some of the decisions that Ye Wenjie, the, the main character, makes um, would not make sense without the Cultural Revolution's background. Um, but at the same time, um, I don't think it's um, necessary or actually helpful to, to treat um, that aspect of it as sort of a uniquely Chinese thing. Um, the Cultural Revolution is actually used as, as, as a representation, in my view, um, of this irrational um, aspect of human nature. Um, the cultural, cultural revolution might be a particularly bloody and difficult episode uh, in human history, but it's not the only episode of that sort. Um, the, the French Revolution, certainly, uh, and other kind of eras of revolutionary fervor, zeal, and excess um, are relevant and are, are things that we should think about in the context of this sort of thing. Um, there's obviously a larger metaphor being made in the book about 
these periods, these alternating periods of, of chaos and stability uh, in the life cycle of the Trisolarans, uh, the aliens, versus um, the, the same kind of cycles of violence in human history. Um, and the, the violence obviously isn't limited only to the Cultural Revolution. It's sort of a hallmark of human progress uh, across the world throughout history. And I think that is a much more interesting and useful way to think about why the Cultural Revolution features so prominently at the beginning. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I, I thought it was fascinating that in the context of the Cultural Revolution, it seemed, or maybe it was already passing, there were um, there was criticism within the science community, or maybe it was the government imposing itself on the scientific community to reject, you know, Einsteinian, you know, worldview, you know, general relativity and such as like Western ideology and that it couldn't be true. And yet the next generation, of course, all those the ideas return and are, are embraced. I mean, the Western, I mean, the, the book itself now, uh, it, it presenting the current state as it does in the, in the chronology and the three-body problem, there is a universal understanding of science. It's not um, everyone working together, in other words, earthlings uh, unified in their understanding of, of science, whereas at the beginning of the book, there's this seems to be this divide. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, the, the book, I think, is um, uh, unabashedly uh, pro-science, pro-rationality. Uh, I mean, the entire point of the book is that the universe is knowable, rationally knowable, and that um, that that is the only way to 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 make forward progress and to to actually ele- um, elevate the human race. Um, but you know, at the same time, um, uh, you know, just to clarify a little bit, um, the, the the debate isn't so much over whether something is quote unquote Western or not. Um, the 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 way the cultural revolution was set up, uh, it wasn't even really the government. I, I mean, it, it's arguable what was the government during the cultural revolution. The, the entire period um, was one where, uh, in essence, factions within the government, if you will, um, were fighting out um, an ideological struggle um, using. Uh, by invoking forces of irrationality in society uh, and joining in this very violent period of, of destruction. Um, and it's not so much, you know, Western ideology versus something not Western, uh, because the very thing they used to critique Einsteinian relativity is, uh, you know, Marxism <laughs> and dialectic, which are also Western ideas. Um, so, so it's really about, you know, what is rationality and what is... Um, uh, uh, a scientific way of view of the universe, uh, and the the struggle at the beginning, um, I think, is better understood as just forces of of stability and rationality and progress versus forces of irrationality and uh, violence and power uh, for the sake of power. Um, and these are the opposing camps uh, uh, being presented in the Cultural Revolution. Um, and uh, the, the idea here is that the main characters were shaped by this background um, and pursues through rational methods and ultimately irrational decision. One of the things that I found really kind of compelling and surprising about the story was the large group of people who you know, the way the story is set up, there's there are aliens who are interested in ultimately 
coming to the Earth and and taking over. And there are a group of people who let the aliens know that the Earth exists and try to aid them and are happy that they're going to come and destroy human civilization because they're tired of it. They think the humans have ruined their the Earth and that hu- human civilization should be destroyed. And I guess I found that interesting because usually the trope in science fiction is that that's the one thing that unites all humans is an alien invasion you know we right i i want to say something about that too um i've heard a lot of readers find that aspect of it not believable or find it really strange um and i have to say um i'm a little baffled by why readers react that way and i'll explain why um i i think if you've studied um the history of colonialism and the way colonial struggles have happened um, it, it, it's complicated. Um, the idea of collaboration with an outside invader in the hopes of, of utterly destroying local institutions and, and local um, uh, elites uh, and local power structures, uh, because either because the collaborationists want to simply uh, do better or because they truly believe that the outside invaders represent saviors of some sort, um, it, it's not a new idea. This kind of thing happens um, in colonial, in the history of colonialism all over the place. Um, uh, so it, it may be that because most American readers have not had an intimate experience or historical experience of uh, being a subject people so, uh, who are invaded and conquered by outside forces uh, or who live, who have lived under a system um, which is falling apart and corrupt and uh, in, unable to resist outside forces in some way uh, that they find this idea really strange. Uh, but it's not really very strange. If you look at history, um, this kind of collaborationism is, is fairly common. I Actually, I didn't find it. I found it um, surprising because most people wouldn't, you know, it seems to be easier just to imagine everyone uniting. But I, I think I found it plausible, not for the reasons you're saying, although what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I was thinking that people look at what we've done to the earth and the environment and the strife and kind of like a Noah's Ark, you know, well, like, hey, you know, maybe it's it's we it's time for uh, the the gods to come down and erase what's here and start over, you know, maybe. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that's actually um, that kind of disgust with the existing uh, system and, and the belief that a, a technologically superior um, people uh, would also be morally superior, uh, I, I think is not uh, all that all that strange. I mean, I don't I, I don't know if that sort of idea is, is represented in Western classical uh, science fiction either, uh, but I can't imagine that's that's a trope that has never been done before. The idea that you know uh, these technologically superior beings are also morally superior to us, and in fact we need them to reform us and to to just give us a fresh new start of some sort. Um, I, I can't imagine that has not done been done before. That's true. Everything's probably been done before. Uh, it's at some point. So. <laughs> I know that's that's what you find out once you've you've studied the field deeply enough. Well, let's move on uh, to the Grace of Kings, which is you know a very different book and a different genre, I guess, if it's the fantasy genre. And I think it's really interesting that you can go from translating and becoming an expert, really, as you say, reading scientific papers and being very interested in the science underlying the three-body problem, 
and then go into a very different kind of storytelling with fantastical creatures and inventions and emperors. Tell me a little bit about you know, where your interests go in, in your writing and, and what the connective tissue is here. Right. Okay, so The Grace of Kings is um, ultimately, uh, if you boil it down to it, a, a reimagining of, of a Chinese historical romance uh, and specifically uh, a set of legends and historical facts around the fall of the Qing Dynasty and the rise of the Han Dynasty uh, around 200 BC um, into the format of a contemporary epic fantasy. And the the, the reason I, I did it this way is because... Um, my wife and I both grew up uh, in Chinese-speaking uh, countries where uh, these historical romances are, are sort of a very fundamental part of the way uh, we learn what narrative is and what story is. Um, you know, every culture has its own set of foundational narratives uh, that are echoed and dialogued with and reimagined uh, over and over again. Um, you know, so for for us in the West, it would be something like the Iliad and the Odyssey and Paradise Lost and Beowulf and the Aeneid and all of these foundational narratives of, of Western culture. Um, they are they are stories about um, how a people um, embody their own values and how 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 a people sort of see themselves uh, as 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 having meaning in the universe. Um, and modern works, um, no matter you know uh, how how they're done echo these foundational narratives in some way, uh, because they, these, these foundational narratives form the, the, the very uh, substructure of, um, of how we understand and perceive storytelling. In China, the same sort of role um, is played by historical romances and, and historical legends. So something like Romance of the Three Kingdoms uh, or the Chu Han Contention, which is uh, the source of the Grace of Kings, uh, play the same sort of role. Uh, these are stories that have been told and retold in many different ways in poetry, in, in folk opera, in TV drama series, um, in martial arts novels, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I wanted to do something interesting, which is to take one of these foundational narratives from, from Chinese culture and then try to reimagine it using the literary um, tropes and techniques of, of another um, set of traditions. Um, and so the Grace of Kings reimagines this set of historical legends using uh, a secondary world um, archipelago setting um, where, you know, things are not China uh, and the people are not Chinese and the languages and culture are not superficially East Asian in any way. But everything is, in, in a foundational sense, inspired by that source narrative. Uh, and, and then I use storytelling techniques that are melding from classical Chinese traditions as well as Western traditions that I've inherited. Uh, and so the result is sort of this melding of, of everything um, into this very fantastical um, universe that I call silk punk. Um, and the idea here is that instead of being like steampunk, which is inspired by Victorian technology and aesthetics, this is a set of uh, a technology vocabulary and aesthetics inspired by and by Chinese and East Asian antiquity. Um, so there are battle kites, uh, and, and mechanical uh, contraptions of various sorts. Um, there are underwater boats. Uh, there are airships uh, that propel themselves through the air using giant feathered oars. Um, everything is, is, has this very cool um, sheen that 
represents um, the kind of uh, machines and inventions you see in Chinese block prints and in old Chinese um, uh, historical romances, but sort of blown up all the way to past uh, past eleven, and uh, extended into um, into a new technology uh, vocabulary that I had a lot of fun playing with. Um, so you know, in some sense, you can sort of view the Grace of Kings as kind of a epic fantasy slash science fiction novel, just the same way that a lot of steampunk is a mixture of fantasy and science fiction. Um, I, I spent a lot of energy working out the technologies and, and seeing how bamboo, paper, feathers, coconut, and all these organic materials of historical importance to East Asia and to the seafaring uh, cultures of the Pacific can be used to build these very immense, powerful contraptions um, that, that transform the way we, we think about um, how life can be in such a world. Um, anyway, so I had a lot of fun doing stuff like that, but I also add a lot of magic to it, and I wanted to embody some of the um, attitudes um, that are very natural uh, to me as a culturally Chinese person, but that may be uh, fresh and interesting to um, a Western audience not familiar with them. So, for example, the gods are not revered, but instead they can be tricked um, and played with. Um, and that's a very old trope uh, in Chinese culture, that the gods are not these omniscient uh, um, and uh, omnipotent beings. Rather, they, they are basically just beings at a higher plane of existence, but, but who are subject to the same kind of manipulation as people. Um, right, so, right. Yeah, and, that's the idea. And and the way the book is written, too, it has a, I, I, if I do say so, it felt like it had a very different rhythm that made it very interesting and made it unexpected as I turned the page because you would, you know, pause over a conversation or a scene, but then at times very quickly pass over, you know, what might be, uh, you know, a, a decade or two of development in an empire or something. And and so it was sort of like, a, I mean, I kind of didn't know where it would go next and the information, I mean, it was very engaging when you'd stop and pause and then you'd jump ahead to another uh, moment like that. And I mean, I could, I mean, it gave it this very epic quality and yet it felt different. It felt like a different kind of storytelling to me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think... Um... Though it's marketed as epic fantasy, it's not. It's not um, very similar to contemporary epic fantasy. It uses some of the tropes from there, uh, but I, I would say it's closer to an epic poem told in the, in the style of a novel. Um, and a lot of the narrative techniques I use would be more familiar um, to people whose uh, whose reference works are like you know the Aeneid or Romance of the Three Kingdoms or something like that. Um, it, it has a much more um, it, it, a lot of the narrative techniques and the way point, point of view is handled should be reminiscent of much older works, uh, even though the sensibility is very modern. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a deliberate, interesting meld, uh, but I think if you go in there expecting a traditional epic fantasy, you might be a little shocked until you get used to it and then figure out what it is I'm doing. And so do you want to just say a little bit about what the story is, just so people give them a taste of like what... Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we should we should start with that, actually. Um, so the, the Grace of Kings uh, is about uh, an empire that recently united the disparate islands of Dara. And the empire is um, efficient, but not particularly well run. And the rule is very harsh. And... So this encourages rebellion, and two individuals uh, who seem like polar opposites, one of them is Kunigaru, 
um, who is a commoner and does not seem to have a lot of ambition. And the other one is Matazindu, who is the son of uh, a duke uh, who has been deposed during the unification and who has always yearned to return to his family to that place of glory and to return the world to uh, to the way it used to be um, before the empire came and messed everything up. So Kuni and Mata uh, become two leaders in the rebellion. Uh, and even though they have such different personalities and different strengths and weaknesses, they end up becoming really good friends and uh, complement each other um, in, in the struggle against the empire. But the problem is, just as they're about to succeed, uh, this pair of um, spiritual brothers find themselves at odds because they have very different visions about how a more just world ought to be constructed. Kuni uh, wants to see revolution and change um, and push forward uh, something that the empire only hints at, uh, whereas Mata wants everything to return to the way it used to be, to a golden age that might never have been. And so that's kind of the, the overall arc and, uh, and uh, uh, framework for the story. And do you have a particular, um, I mean, I know it's not meant to be didactic, but what's your feeling about, without revealing too much, like what who, what makes the best leader? Like what, I mean, there's clearly an evil emperor who sets out in the beginning to, who, who unifies this world, but is very draconian and very um, grandiose and, you know, doesn't care about his people. And that's clearly not a, a model to follow, but... Are there other ideas about leadership and power that you're exploring here? Yeah, it's going to be worked out throughout the series. Um, the, the, the arc for the series as a whole um, is, um, follows the, the idea of punk. You know, I mean, I call it silk punk, not just because there's a lot of East Asian technology sort of thing in there, but because the, the, the overall aesthetic of the book is um, pro-revolution, pro-change. Um, and so the, the, the idea of dynamism of evolving uh, of, of responding to change circumstances technologically economically um, and demographically um, is going to be important uh, this is not a book um, wherein the, the goal is to return to a golden age uh, a status quo ante some some glorious wonderful um, idealized past uh, that never really was this is a book about um, you know how how do you how do you change things things have changed we can't go back so how how do you change and the idea of kingship and 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 also being a ruler and and perhaps sharing power and and even uh, some measure of 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 decentralization are going to come into play um you know i can't give everything away but the, the idea of change overall is is what drives the book and the series. And so when is the next book? Now, the series is called uh, The Dandelion Dynasty. Dynasty, that's right. And when is, uh, when is the next installment? The next installment is scheduled to come out next year, probably middle of the year or maybe later. And are you still writing it? Um, I have most of it done. This is, I'm in the stage now of, of revising, going back. Um, you, know, you know how it is. I mean, um, the first book took me four years to write, and that thing must have gone through dozens of drafts. I don't think a single sentence from the first draft has survived uh, into the published version. Um, the The second book uh, is is you know going through the whole revision, rewriting process now. Um, but you know I'm I'm pretty excited by it. I think I think it's better than the first book, and I I hope readers like it. 
Well, great. And and just give me a little insight into how you how you manage all these different projects. I mean, you're translating, you're uh, writing your own books, you're writing short stories, which is what you've won so many awards for. Um, do you do you jump from one thing to another in the course of a day? Do you set aside a week at a time to work on one project and then move to another? Or? Um, I, I have to say I'm not. I, I can't possibly claim to be that super organized. Um, the the short story uh, thing was was where I put most of my creative energy uh, in the previous during the previous years, but I've basically stopped writing short fiction now. I mean, there are once in a while some sort of anthology invitation that's super interesting. I might do it, but other than that, I, I'm not writing short fiction on spec anymore. Um, so that sort of clears that part up. Ah. Um, uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have the ability to do any of this. Um, um, I, I pretty much have to do things one at a time. I mean, when I was translating the three-body problem, I, I put aside basically, you know, six, seven months of my life um, doing nothing but translating that that book. Uh, it was extremely, extremely draining. Uh, and, and translating book three was even more. Uh, it took a lot out of me. So, um, you know, unless unless it's it's a really compelling novel, uh, I, I, I wouldn't do it again. Um, you know, I did it because I really admire the work. And, and I think the author of this thing is one of those rare talents who can recover the the, the imaginative sensibility um, and the scope of, of one of those classic Arthur C. Clarke type of novels, uh, but tell it in a really interesting contemporary kind of setting. Um, but... Uh, but, you know, short of some amazing work like that, I, I, I wouldn't do another big novel translation project again. Uh, the, I have to focus on my, uh, on my own novels, uh, and these, these are very, very time-consuming. Um, I, I basically do all the writing because I have a day job and have young children at home. Um, I, I have to do the writing basically during commutes between home and work on the train. Wow. Um, so, so the novel is written in these short little chunks, uh, which explains why a lot of revision has to happen because there are things that are just very disjointed when you write like this. Um, and so I have to go back and do a lot of revising and smoothing out. And do you use a laptop or you use longhand? I have a laptop. Uh, thank God I do not write in longhand anymore. Um, but back when I used to take notes in college uh, by paper and pencil, uh, after like a couple of days, I, I wouldn't be able to read what I wrote. So <laughs> thankfully, those days are over. My handwriting is so atrocious. Well, and you also have a collection of short stories that that's going to be published soon. Is that I do. Um, Saga Press, my publisher, um, which is an imprint of Simon Schuster, um, is putting out a collection of my short fiction called The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories um, this October, I think, or November. I can't remember exactly, but it's late in the year. Uh, and I'm super excited. This will be my first collection. Um, and it sort of collects um, what uh, Joe Mounty, my editor, and I thought were the works that were most representative of, of my short fiction career. So it's kind of a really exciting thing to have it all in one place. Wow, well, great. So you've got it, uh, eventually the, the third book of the Three Body Problem that you translated will be coming out, your second book in the Dandelion Dynasty series, and your uh, collection of short stories at the end of the year. So that's, that's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool, yeah. I'm, I'm super excited. Congratulations on all of that, and I really appreciate your taking the time to, to chat with me. 
Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, I've been talking with Ken Liu about his novel, The Grace of Kings, and the novel by Tsuchin Liu, The Three-Body Problem, which Ken translated. Uh, you can listen to more podcasts at www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcasting apps. Uh, you can also find New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy on Facebook and on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. And you can also follow me, Rob Wolf, at Rob Wolf Books. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau, theme music by Michael Aaron, and the editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And next month, I'll be speaking with Meg Ellison, who wrote this year's Philip K. Dick Award winner, The Book of the Unnamed Midwife. So be sure to have a listen. Bye for now, and thanks for listening.